This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim and I teach in the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And as always, I am here with Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello, Alan. Hi there, Darren. Before we get started, I want to draw our listeners' attention to the fact that the AIIA had its national conference for 2018 yesterday on Monday, the 15th of October headlined by some great speeches by our Foreign Minister Maurice Payne, Shadow Foreign Minister Penny Wong, and of course, yourself, Alan. I recommend uh, the AIIA's website to you all, uh, including Australian Outlook, uh, for content coming out of the conference in the coming days. There's a a great discussion, and a lot of it will be summarised and reported upon on the website. Okay, let's get into it. So today's episode is a short one, uh, and really it is a continuation of our last episode because, as you may remember, we discussed the US-China trade war, and Alan and I had a little debate on whether or not the Trump administration's actions uh, in the trade war might serve to reverse some of the more problematic policies that the US is concerned with. And so today we're going to continue that uh, by focusing on Vice President Mike Pence's recent speech at the Hudson Institute um, regarding US-China relations and sort of a darker turn potentially in uh, the relationship between the two major powers and talk of a new Cold War between uh, the US and China. And we'll finish today with a brief discussion of the recent AAA National Conference held on the 15th of October, in particular the speech given by the new Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. So let's turn to US-China relations again. On the 4th of October, Vice President Mike Pence delivered a speech that some have described as the start of a new Cold War between the US and China. It really does cap a full reversal from the administration's early approach uh, to China, where Trump was conciliatory towards Xi Jinping and almost effusive in his praise of him after Xi visited America and then Trump visited Beijing. And really, the current position brings uh, the Trump administration close to the rhetoric of campaign Donald Trump, where he was very crude and critical uh, towards China. Now, Pence delivered the speech at the conservative Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., and he began sort of calmly enough by highlighting many of the efforts that the Trump administration has made to make the U.S.-China relationship a priority, including Trump's visit to Beijing and cooperative on issues of common interest. But then he very quickly shifted his tone and throughout the rest of the speech used what I think is remarkably frank and strong language to criticise Beijing on a number or really the entire gamut of US US concerns, including, and this is a long list, firstly, uh, the CCP's use of, quote, an arsenal of policies inconsistent with free and fair trade, including that, quote, Chinese security agencies have masterminded the wholesale theft of American technology. He then decried Chinese aggression in the South China Sea and a recent confrontation with a US vessel as being reckless harassment uh, and insisted, quote, the US would not be intimidated and we will not stand down. He highlighted growing repression inside China, including, quote, an unparalleled surveillance state 
He asserted that by 2020, quote, China's rulers aim to implement an Orwellian system premised on controlling virtually every facet of human life, the so-called social credit score. Pence then uh, focused in on religious persecution, uh, beginning with Christians and Buddhists, but also mentioning internment camps, internment camps of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. He invoked the now almost trite phrase debt diplomacy to describe China's growing economic influence, including uh, the handover of the Hambantota port in Sri Lanka to Chinese company and sponsorship, China's sponsorship of the repressive Maduro regime in Venezuela. He also criticised the Chinese treatment of foreign companies operating in China, uh, including a Communist Party pressure on individual US companies on issues such as Taiwan. And then finally, and maybe most notably, uh, Pence announced that, quote, Beijing is employing a whole-of-government approach using economic and military tools as well as propaganda to advance its influence and benefit its interests in the United States, end quote. So this is building upon an assertion that Trump made in his uh, speech at the United Nations General Assembly that China was interfering in the midterm elections that are happening next month in the United States. And so given the timing of this speech, you know, just a month before those elections, with the possibility of the Republican Party losing control of the House of Representatives, you know, one wonders whether parts of this speech may have been directed towards domestic political motives. Um, Pence's description of China's election meddling doesn't seem really that different to what every other nation state does, including friendly states from countries like the EU or even us in Australia. Uh, such as publishing ads in, in newspapers um, or targeting industries that um, are politically sensitive um, for trade measures. So there is a possibility that you know, this was a, there was a political logic here um, and maybe a more disturbing possibility that some of what Pence was saying was directed at Donald Trump himself and perhaps trying to distract um, voters and attention from Russian interference in the 2016 election by focusing on China. But we'll get to that in a moment. So my first question to you, Alan, is really more of a broader one um, about speeches like this. You know, who tends to be the primary audience? You know, I'm sure many of the things that Pence enunciated with, have been said behind closed doors uh, to China by US representatives. So what is the logic of making such a, a strong, public and very precise set of accusations so clearly and so forcefully? Oh, well, the logic is to send the clear message that you want to the, uh, to the um, audience you're... Um uh, you're talking to. It's no different, really, from the speech that Malcolm. It's a very different in tone and <laughs> uh, and content, but the the purpose is the same as the speech that uh, Malcolm Turnbull uh, gave at the University of New South Wales, the so-called so reset on us on Australia-China uh, relations. So you are trying to send a set of messages, essentially, uh, to the country uh, con uh, concerned. You're also, of course, sort of you know shoring up. Um, uh, people back home, making sure that the uh, the rest of the um, uh, government is acting in the same way. So it's a it's a strategic direction setting uh, speech. I mean, uh, overblown, I think, in uh, in lots of uh, places, but of a sort which is really quite familiar. Okay, so there isn't really much distinction then between things that are said behind closed doors and things that are said publicly? 
Well, um, I wouldn't have. I, I mean, you said these things had been said behind uh, closed doors. I wouldn't have thought they had been, okay. at least in the in the way that they were. Okay. They were given uh, uh, there. I think these have all been sort of brought together and knitted into a an attempt at a coherent <laughs> <laughs> narrative um, in uh, in uh, a new way. So I, w- I would be surprised if the you know discussions between the Secretary of State and uh, the Chinese ambassador in in um, Washington has been had been as broad as these. Oh, okay, that's interesting. I had always assumed that all these things had always had some history to them, and that nothing surprising or new would be said in a speech, a well scripted and planned speech like this. But you're saying actually, it's possible that many of these things were not brand new, but certainly a surprise, knitted uh, together in a new way. Okay, interesting. Alan, is there any significance to the fact that the speech was given by the vice president rather than Trump himself? Well, I thought that was interesting. I mean, there are several reasons why it might have been the uh, case. One is that uh, Trump has decided not to go to APEC and the East Asia Summit, which I think is a great disappointment uh, to those of us in the the region who believe in the importance of those uh, two institutions. But it might also be that the president is trying to keep just a little bit of distance himself from the sort of uh, policy articulated there so that he can preserve his own personal relationship with uh, Xi Jinping. I mean, we know that uh, President Trump attaches great importance to to personal, uh, personal dealings. So he may just feel that this gives him a little more leverage uh, than uh, than if he'd uh, done it himself. I, I don't uh, I don't know, and it may, as you uh, as you uh, said earlier, also reflect a desire on the administration's part to say, <coughs> see, it's not just Russia interfering in our uh, affairs. Um, you need to look more broadly than that at China as well, though that was the least persuasive part of the speech. I suppose. There is a possibility with the two leaders slated to meet with each other at the G20, I G20, believe. G20, yeah, I think they've, uh, they've, well, they've almost, they're doing a dance around it, but <laughs> um, probably will. But that, that might be the last opportunity for some time for yeah. some stepping back. Yeah. Uh, and so preserving that space for a personal um, rapport um, might be seen as a positive. Yeah. So I want to begin our analysis of the speech with a segment, quoting a a segment uh, at some length. So Pence says, After the fall of the Soviet Union, we assumed that a free China was inevitable. Heady with optimism at the turn of the 21st century, America agreed to give Beijing open access to our economy and we brought China into the World Trade Organization. Previous administrations made this choice in the hope that freedom in China would expand in all of its forms, not just economically, but politically, with a newfound respect for classical liberal principles, private property, personal liberty, religious freedom, the entire family of human rights. But that hope has gone unfulfilled. Now, in a Financial Times op-ed a few days later, Graham Allison of the Thucydides Trap fame characterised this idea as follows. Previous administrations made a cosmic bet. They wagered that integrating China into the US-led international order would lead it to develop a normal free market economy, democracy, the rule of law, guaranteeing human rights, 
and acceptance of its place, that is China's place, as a responsible stakeholder. They lost that bet and the Trump administration is left to deal with the consequences. Alan, is this a case of a failed bet? Well, it's entirely unclear to me what other bet you could possibly have uh, made at the uh, at the time. If you look looking back at the uh, at the turn of the century, uh, China China's reform uh, program was really getting underway. It was joining the WTO. Jurongji uh, as the uh, as the premier was um, a, you know well known advocate of uh, using external pressure as a way of uh, of uh, reforming. Uh, things inside uh, uh, China, and we all benefited from that. You know, it's very hard for Australia to say it was a f- uh, it was a failed bet mm, mm. to uh, to make that uh, assumption. And so you're saying it would have been unrealistic to you know to take a harder line at various points in time if China was going off in directions that made the West feel uncomfortable. Coming down harder then would have been counterproductive and not helped, you know, shift course, you know, fork in the river style um, years ago. Well, you can, you can, you know, you can always revisit decisions made in the, in the past and say that, you know, one point or another, um, you could have uh, done something different, but would Australia have been better off by not signing the free trade agreement mm. with China? I certainly don't think so. And uh, the government uh, obviously doesn't believe so uh, either. So, um so I think there's a bit of sort of looking in the rear view uh, mirror and rejudging what uh, could have been done or what would have been sensible for anyone to do at the time. I mean, it was, you know, in, in many ways, although people are now sort of criticising the phrase responsible stakeholder, mm-hmm. China has been a responsible stakeholder in elements mm-hmm. of the international order which have suited uh, suited it. So, um, yeah, it's not binary. Okay, well, if we then turn to the present, and clearly there are a range of concerns that Washington has regarding China's behaviour. But there's a second problem that that the the US has, which is trying to keep its own domestic um, position or its own domestic public and various stakeholders on the same page. And so there has been an argument that has been made that um, part of the logic of protecting the liberal international order needs to be to reinvigorate support of it from within. Uh, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts. And you talked about this idea yesterday in your speech at the AAA National Conference, Alan, when you mentioned the danger of what you termed othering, in which human beings sort of in tribal and group uh, logics distinguish between us and them. And you called that a, a powerful social tool. Why did you raise the question of othering in the context of US-China relations? Mostly um, because I was, I'd read in uh, an article you'd given me, actually, Darren, mm-hmm. uh, from Foreign, Foreign Affairs, uh, an article by two highly reputable IR academics from the liberal internationalist school. So that's Robert who, Cohane and, uh, and Jeff Colgan. Who were who were wringing their hands at the uh, at the sort of problems that the U.S. Uh, had encountered, and came to the conclusion that the only way of getting ordinary Americans to uh, support the uh, issues that uh, the two academics um, believed in was to recreate a new Soviet Union. All was well 
during the Cold War uh, because you knew what side you were on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, they say uh, specifically that othering authoritarian states like uh, China is the only way of getting the American public on side to support a liberal world order. Now, A, I don't think that that's the only way of getting mm-hmm. the American public on side. Um, uh, B, I think it's a really uh, dangerous uh, approach for the, you know, uh, for the United States to take because China is not uh, the Soviet Union during the Cold War. There are the things that bind the two sides together are too dense. The consequences are, uh, are very much more complex than they were uh, when you had it, the, the very clear not only strategic but also div- uh, economic division between the, t- the East and West during the Cold War. So if the world is not so clean as you know, black and white and good and evil uh, or evil empire, to use Ronald Reagan's phrase, as it was during the Cold War, but we nevertheless do have significant disagreements uh, with another major power who potentially, an adversary potentially poses uh, a serious threat. How should we frame these disagreements if not through an othering device? Well, we should frame them with, uh, with precision. Uh, we should uh, f- you know, frame them in a, in a, in a way which um, enables us to, uh, to advance our own uh, interests um, in, in, uh, in dealing with them, but which doesn't construct China in this case uh, as an entity with which you can't deal because mm. it is other. Yes. You know, because it is the enemy. You can say we've got lots of problems with you, China, on South China Sea or on uh, what you're doing in uh, cyber or, uh, you know, the Belt and Road mm. uh, Initiative. No problem at all with that. It's just this, uh, the uh, metaphorical iron, well, I suppose the iron curtain was always metaphorical, <laughs> but uh, the, the descent of another uh, sort of iron curtain between the two sides, that's the problem. I'll have to tell my students in polls 3017 International Relations Theory who are studying constructivism and the social construction of identity and interest uh, to listen to this podcast because that was a, a nice little lesson for them on what is a very complex theory of international relations. So well done, Alan, on that one. Okay, well, let's turn to the reaction in China. Uh, and, you know, we begin with sort of a foreign ministry spokesman giving a press conference and sort of denying uh, the accusations of domestic interference, calling them groundless. Uh, but I noticed that China's ambassador to Washington, uh, Chui Tianke, went on Fox News of all of all channels, maybe because that was the one he knew that Trump would watch, um, to both rep- repeat um, China's defence that the domestic interference accusations were groundless, but also further to deny um, accusations regarding intellectual property theft and forced technology transfers. And he called such claims not fair to the Chinese people. But overall, my read is still that the reaction was muted. I mean, the very fact that he was willing to go on, I think, Brit Hume's show and and, and have an interview um, suggests rather than a sort of a panicked or very aggressive response, um, one that's very measured, but also maybe even a bit confused. And he, in fact, called, uh, used the word confusing to describe in that same interview, you know, Trump's or the Trump administration's policy on on trade. And it was very confusing who was in control and, and whose views um, they should be taking seriously. 
Now, there was an excellent piece in the online publication The Diplomat by the Chinese scholar Chen Dingding uh, on the 7th of October, um, who described three major schools of thought from, um, on Pence's speech um, inside China uh, and the general future of US-China relations. There was the pessimistic view, uh, which is that Pence's speech was simply the wolf showing its teeth and that, and that this was the dropping of any pretense that the US was trying to do anything other than contain China. So that's the pessimistic view. There was the concerned view, which is that things are not going great, but that, there, and it, uh, that, that conflict is not inevitable and that there might be changed circumstances in the future, such as a new US government, a slowing US economy, uh, or maybe a more isolated America globally that could help you know, bring the two, about the two sides back from the brink. And thirdly, there was the calmer view, which is really that there was nothing new to see here, um, that uh, these criticisms had been longstanding. Uh, and this was really posturing for uh, two domestic audiences ahead of the, of the midterm elections. This made me, when I read this article, Alan, I, I thought of debates um, from maybe a decade ago uh, about different coalitions inside China. You had the internationalist coalition, you had a more nationalist coalition, and, and, and the argument was that the West needed to try to strengthen the internationalist elements in their political debates and political contests inside China, because that was the best way to sort of make China into a, a status quo power. Uh, is there any are there any lessons from these debates for today? Should we be thinking about different factions inside China and the impact of a speech like Pence's on the domestic politics inside China, or is this really not helpful um, in today's world? Well, I, I'd say that on, on Chen Dingding's um, uh, analysis, um, I was in. Beijing, as you know, a couple of mm. couple of weeks ago with some ANU colleagues, and it was hard to find the karma view <laughs> uh, anywhere. So I, I think that the at least in Beijing, and um, you know, there's more to China than than uh, the Beijing Beltway. Um, the uh, attitudes ranged from concerned to pessimistic, with pessimistic uh, gaining increasing uh, traction. Uh, so I think there is a growing awareness uh, in China that uh, the things that you've been talking about, views in Washington generally, not just the Trump administration, are darkening uh, towards China and that there's a longer term uh, geopolitical and geoeconomic tussle uh, engaged uh, here. Now, I don't think people have written off the possibility that things will uh, get uh, better or that, you know, things can be done. But but uh, I think there's a hunkering down in both uh, places. Uh, as to the appeal to the Chinese uh, internationalists, I think they're a bit like the Iranian moderates that people <laughs> were always uh, searching for, or indeed the internationalists in uh, in the in, in the United States, uh, yes. in the US itself. Um, you know, the internationalists are people like you and me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> we don't uh, we don't matter a damn really. Um, so uh, I think that there is no way out of this that will involve simply persuading a handful of people. Uh, in in Beijing, that uh, that uh, their interests lie more in stopping doing the things that uh, Xi Jinping has declared that uh, they are going to be doing. Fair enough.
So I guess, Alan, the final question is to bring this back to Australia. And you know, over the past few weeks since the speech was given, there's been a lot of commentary and analysis. You know, we have our polls in the, this debate on China and the US and the future of Sino-US relations here in Australia, and everyone has had their say. Uh, what, you know, what do you take away from this? Is this something that is of some significance? You know, is it a turning point in the relationship? Is it something that we should be thinking about deeply into the future? What's your take on how this affects Australia? Uh, look, I think we. It, it, I don't think it's a turning point. I, I, I think the the ship the ship of state has been uh, has veering has been sort of in in its turning circle for some time uh, now. But it sort of progresses that uh, that more anxious, um, not to say adversarial view that you got in the national security statement and the national mm. defence uh, strategy. Uh, earlier on. Um, for Australia, it simply means that our life, as we've been saying uh, here, is going to get more and more difficult because if you contrasted what Pence was saying with what Scott Morrison was saying, for example, in his speech to the Chinese community uh, here, which was posted on the website of the Australian Embassy in Beijing, but didn't appear in, uh, um, main, I don't know whether it's there now, but it wasn't for a while on the website of the, uh, of the uh, Prime Minister. It's a very different, uh, it's a very different uh, tone and acceptance that we've got different systems and that we'll have disagreements uh, and uh, different views from time to time. But the emphasis is always on uh, what, what's crucial Prime Minister says that we, is that we manage these divergences constructively guided by the principle of equality and our deep and abiding mutual respect um, because above all we're acutely aware of the strong fundamentals that we share. Now that's not what the uh, Pence uh, speech was saying So, uh, and what uh, Scott Morrison said was very similar to what uh, Malcolm Turnbull said in that uh, speech just before he was dumped as as uh, leader. So there is a there is a growing difference, not just in tone but in content, in the way Australian governments are talking about China and the way the U.S. government is talking about China. And this is going to be very difficult for us to navigate. I think what jumps out at me, and it's sort of a bit ironic, is that. You know, for many years now, one of the major pillars of Australian foreign policy has been to ensure continued US engagement with the region. Uh, that the worst thing that could happen to us is if the US you know, packs up and, and re retreats across the Pacific. And to, I read this speech as, yes, the US saying we are engaged, we're very interested in what's happening now, uh, and we're going to give it our own interpretation, which is a very dark, pessimistic and adversarial one. Uh, and so... You know, in one way, we are getting what we asked for, but in another way, that's even more concerning than not. Uh, is there? Uh, how do you resolve that irony, Alan? Well, there's. I mean, we, we Australia has always wanted the United States engaged in this region in precisely the exact way that we want them <laughs> to to uh, to be here. And and when you're dealing with a uh, with a superpower, it's not always possible to calibrate the uh, degree of uh, engagement and in involvement in the in the way that you uh, want. So uh, I think we've certainly um, wanted the United States to be more involved diplomatically in the 
region. Uh, the sort of, you're talking about ironies. The other irony of this, though, is that Trump is not going to come to the uh, to the region, to the EAS, and to uh, and to APEC, uh, and we're getting uh, uh, Pence instead. Okay. Well, for our second news item, we had planned to talk about the case of the Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, but on today's date, on Tuesday, the sixteenth of October, there has been breaking news that the Saudi Arabian government is apparently planning to take responsibility for his accidental uh, death or killing inside the consulate in Istanbul. And so we might hold off um, until the next episode for a discussion of of the full implications of this grim uh, and very complex uh, tale. And what we might do instead, uh, Alan, is, is go back to yesterday when the AAA had its national conference and we saw speeches by both the foreign minister and the shadow foreign minister. And, uh, Alan, you were lucky enough to, to, to follow them, I understand, uh, in, in giving your remarks. Uh, is there anything you want to draw um, or highlight or draw upon or talk about in some, in some more detail to point our listeners to, to um, further, you know, if they're seeking further information? about yeah. the events of yesterday. Yeah, look, sometimes uh, it's useful to just pause and uh, think to ourselves how lucky we are actually to be in Australia and with the sort of polity <coughs> that we have here. And that was what I was thinking of yesterday morning as I was listening to uh, Maurice Payne and Penny Wong both give excellent uh, speeches, I thought. Um, uh, Foreign Minister's speech was... Uh, sort of broad and comprehensive and thoughtful about the world and obviously delivered um, by someone who'd thought about the issues. She wasn't just sort of sprouting what uh, speechwriters had put in, in front of her. And then, uh, and then Senator Wong gave a really, you know, a, a wonks special uh, speech on the issue of nuclear disarmament, which has been very you know, core to Labor Party policy over many years. And she was talking about what an incoming Labor government would do in this area, but with great uh, uh, precision and care. And so I I thought, you know, there's the government and the alternative government uh, in in Australia, and and both of them are um, thinking carefully about the world. But beyond the sort of keynote speeches by the uh, by the ministers, uh, I thought there were examples of really good discussion going on in the Australian community about a whole um, range of issues in the world which are important uh, to us. I learnt things, for example, about uh, the the uh, debate on outer space on lethal autonomous uh, weapons on climate change. There's a great uh, mix of young people and old people uh, like me and, uh, and gender um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the debate. And so I thought it, it really showed the health of, uh, of which you know, sounds surprising when uh, given how self-critical uh, we are here in Australia, but the, the liveliness of the debate about Australia and the world. Okay, well, let's then wrap up uh, with our final brief segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at the moment? Well, we've been talking an awful lot about uh, uh, China and one thing that's impressed me uh, particularly in the last uh, uh, week or so is uh, listening to Mike Morell, the former 
uh, acting uh, director of the CIA and before that the head of analysis there, and uh, Chris Johnson, who's a very well-known um, uh, China scholar in the US, did work for the intelligence uh, community uh, now at CSIS um, on this whole uh, issue of how the United States, what's happened to the relationship between the US and China. And that's on Mike's uh, Intelligence Matters uh, podcast. It's a very non-Trumpian, uh, non-Pensian, <laughs> non-Boltonian uh, uh, view of the world informed by deep knowledge. And it's always good to hear that sort of thing. Great. Well, I also have a podcast recommendation. I haven't had time to do a lot of reading or, or watching over the past few weeks. Um, but this does presage a book, I suppose. The The podcast is Conversations with Tyler, uh, Tyler Cowan. I may have mentioned him on an earlier podcast, actually. He's an economist and a sort of a public intellectual uh, at George Mason University. And he has a recent interview with Bruno Machesh, who is a Portuguese author, political commentator, former politician as well, I believe, on Machesh's uh, forthcoming book or new book, Dawn of Eurasia. And there's a, a great discussion of liberalism uh, and some of its, uh, I guess, some of its uh, shortcomings, a lack of a spirit of adventure, um, and also, though, an interesting discussion of Eura the Eurasian continent, the rise of China, and a lot of other foreign policy issues that our listeners would be very interested in. So the conversations with Tyler, with his interview with Bruno Machesh. Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank, as usual, AAA intern Stephanie Rowell, our research assistant, and Manny Babel, our audio engineer, Martin Pierce of the Crawford School for Technical Support, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and last but not least, AAA CEO Melissa Conley-Tyler for her support. Thank you and talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.